time together today, I want to say first to all the mothers, Happy Mother's Day to you. And if we were all together, we would most likely be honoring women at least by having them stand and we applaud. And maybe you want to do that in your living room for your mom, wherever you are, wherever she is. But just know that we do honor you and we are grateful for you. We also know that not every time, not every Mother's Day is being celebrated the same way. And what I mean by that is there's others who have mothers that are gone. And, and we are sensitive to that as well. We know that the word Mother's Day brings tears as well as smiles. And so the point remains, as long as we can honor our mothers, we will do that. And so we would just encourage you to do the very same thing. Well, today, as we continue working through the entire Bible, we come to the one that I talked to you about a little bit last week, Song of Solomon. Song of Songs, however you refer to it. And this is, this is one of those books where you think about that is in the Bible. And this is, this is the, the biblical birds and bees talk. And so you keep that in mind with those young ears that may be in earshot. And we will just trust you to be prudent. And I'll tell you this, God works out the time where it is no more comfortable for me to speak these words than it perhaps is for you to hear them. And so, how unique a time is it that I am saying these words in this embarrassing, intense sermon with only eight other people in the room. So, as we get started and look at sex in salvation history, I want to be sure that through all of this, from the very start, that we connect, just like we have with every other text, with every other book of the Bible, we connect this text to the overall story of redemption the overall one book, one author, and to God alone will be the glory. And it may be difficult to imagine how this text fits in with salvation history, but stay tuned and we will get there. There are, in our culture, there are several competitors to Christianity. And I want to take a minute to look at to look at a few of them, a few of the competitors to Christianity in our culture. And the the first is egotism, and that is the idolatry of self. This is where we worship ourselves. Self is supreme it seems a little weird to think about worshiping yourself until we look at it in our modern-day context. It sounds perfectly normal in our society to use the word self-esteem, self-confidence, self-promotion, even self-satisfaction. All of these things focus on and point to egotism where self is supreme. And this is, we looked at this and addressed in the book of Proverbs. So egotism, materialism is the second competitor. Materialism is the idolatry of stuff. Not worshiping ourselves necessarily, but worshiping stuff. I want this, I want that. And, and that's addressed in the book of Ecclesiastes. But then the third one we come to today is eroticism. And this is the idolatry of sex. And all of these things is taking something that God made for a specific context and worshiping it 
out of context. And this is addressed, of course, in the book of Song of Solomon. And a pastor that you may have heard of named Mark Deaver, he writes, The most important revolution of the last century has been the sexual revolution. Contraception replaced conception. Pleasure has separated, was separated from responsibility. It was as if a license was given out of, was given out legitimizing the bending of every part of our lives around serving ourselves. Since that time, divorce, remarried, abortion, premarital sex, and extramarital sex, as well as homosexuality, have been accepted by increasing percentages of the public. And so, for this reason, among other reasons, it's a really good thing that we have the book of Song of Solomon, because here's the deal. It would really, when you think about it, make no sense if we didn't have this book. God has created us as sexual beings. It is really an integral part of who we are and how he has created us to relate to one another. It would make no sense if we had nowhere in the canon of Scripture where God addresses this. And so we have the book of Song of Solomon. And so yes, you have physical longings and cravings and desires and urges. And you have them because God gave them to you. And he gave them to you for your good and for his glory. And so... With that said, I want to read the first chapter of Song of Solomon to get us started. We'll address other texts as we go within this book. And then we will dig in. The Bible says in Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 1, Solomon's Song of Songs. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is more delightful than wine. Pleasing is the fragrance of your perfume. Your name is like perfume poured out. No wonder the maidens love you. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chambers. And friends, say, we rejoice and delight in you. We will praise your love more than wine. And the beloved says, how right they are to adore you. Dark am I, yet lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, dark like the tents of Kedar, like the tent curtains of Solomon. Do not stare at me because I am dark, because I am darkened by the sun. My mother's sons were angry with me and made me take care of the vineyard. My own vineyard I have neglected. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? And the friends say, If you do not know the most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. I liken you, my darling, to a mare, harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyard of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming, and our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars, our rafters are firs. So, with all of this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open your word, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds and address us in this deep, where you have made us, and yet our culture is threatening to sway us away from you. So Lord, I pray for every person listening right now, that it would be 
your voice that we hear clearly. And even hearing it over the modern sirens of modernity, the, the voices that scream out to us to say, come over this way, leave what God has taught you to come my way. And Lord, I pray for families, for marriages, for future marriages, that God, you would be honored in the way that we follow after you as it relates to this. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this is hard to understand language. It's hard to understand the context, the images, the plants, the animals, the spices, the perfumes. And you know, it makes sense to refer to, to a lover as darling or dove or fountain. But when he says she looks like a horse, or that her hair looks like a flock of goats, or that her nose is like a tower, this guy has no chance. You just don't say that. And let me tell you this, I have given you my wisdom on what not to do for Mother's Day years ago when I did not acknowledge my wife as a mother because she's not my mother. That's dumb. But also is dumb to refer to your love as a horse or a flock of goats or to refer to her, her teeth and that it is very interesting that she has them all. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is one of the most hilarious pictures in the first few verses. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind, behind your veil are doves. Your hair is like a flock of goats descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of sheep just shorn, coming up from the washing. Each has its twin. Not one of them is alone. Do you get that? He is attracted to her because she has all her teeth. I'm not sure that this text is practiced in every state in our union. They may not hold to that in Kentucky or other places in the holler, but you know that as, as you look at this and you look at your love that you see of what you should and should not say. We can learn wisdom from Solomon. I had a picture for you, but it's not really working right now. Of if you took this literal and you took this picture of what this person would look like, it was a pretty funny picture. I wish you could see it. But I want to address some questions about Song of Solomon in the church. And and really, one of the questions is, is it allegorical? Like, how do we read this text? What do we mean from it? And I am fairly certain that he really doesn't think his lady love looks like a horse. I'm pretty sure. Allegorical, is it like extended metaphor? Does, it's not a true story, but points to something else. That's what allegory is. Or is it typological, where one thing stands for another? Or it's a shadow of something to come? And listen, I'm telling you, this is hilarious, because in, in studying Song of Solomon, you can come across a lot of scholars or scholars that seriously say that the lover's kisses refers to the Word of God. Her waist refers to the Sanhedrin. Her lips, her two lips, the law and the gospel. Her breast, Moses and Aaron. I'm not making this up. And so when you read and you study, be careful who you read and who you study and what you study. And so... 
Is it allegorical? Is it typological? Is it literal? Does she really look like a horse? Is he really that excited because she has all of her teeth? What kind of hairstyle looks like a flock of goats? Is it a story? Or is it songs, as it says? Are there two characters or three? Like, there's a Shulamite, Shulamite woman, and then there is the shepherd, and then Solomon. Is that three, or is there only two because Solomon is the shepherd? I know you woke up and put on your church pajamas just to hear this, right? The other thing that is is pretty important is that is this the very opening statement chapter 1 verse 1 where it says Solomon's song of songs is are these songs is this to Solomon is it by Solomon or is it about Solomon either could be technically possible in translation-wise based on what is written. And so these are the debates. And I'm sure that you want to debate this. I don't. Here are the things that are clear. It's clear that it's musical. The song of songs, the finest of songs. And there it is. It's a, a song... And it's obviously a romance song. And, and I think it's very interesting that this is it's part of the canon of Scripture. And thus it is God-breathed. And so this is a God-breathed romance song. And, and it's showing us a celebration of sexual love. But it's also reminding us of cautions about sexual love. And so, it's a celebration of sexual love, but it is within the proper context. Within the proper context between a married man and woman, this is a beautiful picture. And... When I was growing up, I heard as a, as a youth, as a teenager, all kinds of things about sex. And we had sex ed, sex talk, and, and in church, they talked about sex and what you do, what you don't do, and, and all of these things. <clears throat> and I remember hearing serious teaching that sex was for procreation only. And so, of course, in my, in my young teenage life, I could count people's children. And, of course, because this was true in my mind, that you knew how many times that every couple had had sex. That just made sense. But that's not true at all. As we look in this book, as we look in the Song of Solomon, eight chapters, nowhere are kids mentioned. Nowhere. Sex in the proper confines of marriage is not just for procreation, but also for pleasure. And so, the celebration of sexual love but also the reminding us of cautions about sexual love. Three different times, chapter 2, verse 7, we see this written, Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. Chapter 3, verse 5, Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And then 
in the last chapter, chapter 8, in verse 4, again, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And so we see these cautions. Wait. Wait until marriage. Wait until God leads you to marriage for this to happen. And so, let's look at the story. A king and his bride in Song of Solomon. This is where it gets real. As you read through this text, and I'm assuming that you have read it, especially those who are reading through Scripture, you see here exclusive devotion. And this is sweet. They sought out only each other. Chapter 1. You see it here in chapter 1, verse 2. You see it in chapter 3. I looked for the one my heart loved. I looked for him. And you see it all over, really. Chapter 4, verse 12. You are like a garden locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. In other words, locked, locked away from all other men but her. They saw only after each other. And then you go from exclusive devotion to heated anticipation. They began with tender words. And chapter 5, I want to read this. Here's a description. And you think about this between a, a married man and woman. Within the confines of marriage, listen to this description, these tender words. My lover is radiant and ruddy. This is her describing him. Outstanding among ten thousand. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheek are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with crystalline. His body is like polished ivory decorated with sapphires. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon choice as its cedars. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my lover. This is my friend, old daughters of Jerusalem. Look at that picture. That is a beautiful picture of man and wife. And maybe your wife does not say that your arms are like rods of gold. But you get the picture. And then, in chapter 6, it is his turn to speak to her. Chapter 6, verse 4, he says, You are beautiful, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, majestic as troops with banners. And then, he continues... A few verses down. But my dove, my perfect one, is unique. The only daughter of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The maiden saw her and called her blessed. The queens and concubines praised her. You get the hint. Who is it that appears like the dawn? First as the moon, bright as the sun, majestic. As the stars in procession. I pray for this. I pray that this is the pattern for all the marriages in this church. 
and that we would run from the temptation of anything else, from seeking after only, only each other, but then the act of marriage that began with tender words that led to tantalizing work. How often do you get to use tantalizing in a sermon? Chapter 4. After he describes her, you can see that he is looking at her and he is giving her a, a description from top to bottom. And listen to his words as they do the marriage work. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes beyond your veil are like doves. And you see this, this picture. But then where he speaks of the teeth, he speaks of the hair. And then your lips are like a scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like the hat of a pomegranate. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built with elegance. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Until the day breaks, and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountains of myrrh and to the hill of incense. All beautiful you are, my darling. There is no flaw in you. It's not hard to understand to what he is referring. My, one of my seminary professors, who is now the president of Southeastern Seminary in the Raleigh area, he says... Note that there is nothing even remotely pornographic about this imagery here. Pornea clearly refers to evil sexual desire, and an entire industry is built on exploiting this sinful passion. But the point here is that a man's desire for his wife is holy. His pleasure and erotic desire for her is holy. To deny this is to deny one of God's good gifts. He compares this part of her body to twin fawns of a gazelle that feed among the lilies. They are soft, attractive, tender, delicate. Then he describes them as two mountains. One of a mountain of myrrh, the other a hill of frankincense. Both spices are expensive and used as perfume for the body in the marriage bed. So enraptured is he that he desires to make love to his wife all night long until the day breathes and the shadows flee. When I do premarital counseling, one of the most difficult things is, is to look into the eyes of a couple, especially if they are committed believers, and, and as we speak about sex, to say, you know the things that everybody has been telling you not to do in church. All of the church people have always said sex is bad and all of these things are bad. Well, suddenly, after you say I do, they're all of a sudden good. The truth of the matter is, they are never bad things. It's just bad times, bad place. It is always right in the proper context of marriage for sex to happen. And so, suddenly the switch has to cut on, and it's not always as easy as you would think, to go from this, this whole sexual idea of being scandalous and evil to suddenly be something that is even commanded in marriage. And so... This uncomfortable picture. I hope that you were just as, as uncomfortable and awkward as I was during that whole talk. But in this, there is pure satisfaction. Emotional satisfaction. 
spiritual satisfaction. It draws back to the picture in the Garden of Eden when they were naked without shame. And when sin entered the world, one of the first things that happened is they realized they were naked. So this satisfaction, emotional, spiritual, intellectual, physical satisfaction. And then it ends, the book ends in chapter 8. The last verse ends with a perpetual invitation where it says, Come away, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the spice-laden mountains. In other words, let's do this again soon. And so really, this is a word to, to all of the married people hearing me right now. Nourish this area of your life. Nourish this area of your marriage. It is important. We have some guidelines and some hints in the book of Song of Solomon. And perhaps in nine months, our children's ministry will be booming. But this is a look at the king and his bride in the Song of Solomon. But I want us to tie this in with the whole Bible by looking at a king and his bride in Ephesians. And I will storm through these areas. But in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 5, 22 and following... The Bible says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he does himself, and the wife must respect her husband. And so hear this. There is humble devotion here. This humble devotion in knowing that this king has sought after you. This king of kings has looked for you, has sought after you, has ordered your steps and ordered your life that you might be drawn to him, that he might find you. And there is anticipation, historic anticipation, that he is, that this king is the fulfillment of all God's word. This king is flawless in all of his works. And so, husbands, why do you need exclusive devotion to your wife? We need to do this because we are showing the world how Christ loves his church. And if Christ gives up on his church, then maybe it would be okay for us to give up on our lives. But he is not going to give up on his church and nor we, nor can we ever give up on our brides. And so we see this sacrificial consummation. We talked about sacrifice in Sunday school this morning. And we can see that in Ephesians 5.25, where Christ gave his body for us. And in him we have total satisfaction. Love him with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And he ends with an invitation as well. 
He invites us to come to him to find forgiveness of our sin. He said without stain or blemish and present you as a bride holy without blemish and spot. And so earthly marriage is a foretaste of something greater in heaven. And I want to take you to the end. In Revelation 19, verse 6, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous act of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. And then a couple pages over as we draw a conclusion to the Bible. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. You have heard this text before and you will hear it again as we go through the Bible. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Prepares the bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things is So continual devotion. This king will never stop seeking you. No matter where your eyes are, no matter where your feet have run, this king will never stop seeking you. And in Revelation, we see this hopeful anticipation as we cling to his word, as we commit to his work, and this glorious consummation where our bodies will be made complete in Him. The consummation of the gospel is in heaven bringing glory to God forever. And there will be eternal satisfaction. And He will heal our hearts. To every brother or sister in this room for whom the Song of Solomon opens up a difficult thought or wounds. Wounds from broken marriages or damaged relationships or even lost loved ones. I want to remind you that you have a husband in heaven that will one day heal your heart completely. And praise God, it doesn't end in Song of Solomon. Praise God that it never ends because we have a Father. We are the bride of Christ who is the husband who will wipe away every tear. No more crying, no more pain. Could you imagine that there are countless marriages around our minds around this world that when we say that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain that they anticipate that day because their lives have been shrouded in pain. And he will heal our hearts and we will wear his righteousness. He tells us he will wipe away our sin. Those who 
to confess those who are in Christ. And so, to every brother and sister who's hearing me now, that the Song of Solomon has been for you a conviction of sexual sin. Hear this. That this may be your past, this may even be your present, and you feel stained. He tells us that his forgiveness is complete, and his righteousness is yours to wear. We, he will heal our hearts, we will wear his righteousness, and we will see his a big deal. The created will see the face of the creator. And we will feast at his table. So not just invited out of the furnace to escape the flames, but we're family. And how special it is that this special relationship that we will have with, with God forever he describes it in the picture of a husband and a wife. It is no wonder that there is not a higher view of heaven when there is such a low view of marriage in our society. So to those who have never surrendered to the love of this king, this king has pursued you faithfully. This king has promised that Though perhaps you know too much about being left, this king will never leave you. I want to just share this with you. That this king has pursued you. He is worthy. And so would you confess your need for him and ask for him to change your heart, your life. Surrender to him. And to every brother or sister in Christ, believer, are you in sexual sin? Let it go and find the forgiveness that he has offered to you. See his love for you and be drawn to Jesus as the bride of Christ. This text, it's not easy. But heart surgery rarely is easy. And we need it. And so, this is a picture for our hearts. It tells us perhaps what the heart should look like. And it gives us something to measure ours by. It shows us when our heart is broken and torn. It shows how to be fixed. Who is the heart surgeon? But just like heart surgery, I don't sign you up for heart surgery. I can tell you that your heart is jacked up. I can tell you I know a guy who can fix it. I can tell you about a heart surgeon that has a perfect track record. But it's your decision. Ultimately, the decision about your, your marriage or about the dirt in your heart, that's yours. The greater decision about your future, of your, your spiritual heart and your eternity, that decision is yours. And so I encourage you, to love your life, love your heart enough to give it to the one who made it. Give your marriage to the one who has created marriage and created sex for good. I'm praying for a revival in our country. And I believe that it will begin in the hearts of, of believers as believers turn to Christ. Truly following him and not wanting to just to stay a step better than the world, 
but a step closer to Christ-likeness. And so I hope that you will take that challenge. And I want to pray for you. I want you to hear the truth. I want you to know that as your pastor, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your marriage. And I'm here for you. If you want to, to call me, and we can set up a face-to-face, -face, maybe a mask-to-mask, -mask, whatever we need to do. But I want to help you, and I want to promise that I'm going to pray for you. Is there a decision that you need to make now, right now, wherever you are right now? Is God leading you to make a decision to turn away from evil, to turn to Christ, to give your life to Him, to run back to Him? What is God leading you to do? Is he making a decision, or is he leading you to make a decision to join with this church body? What is God leading you to do? I'm praying that you will take that and take it seriously. And so I want to pray for you right now. Would you allow God to work in your heart right now? Let's pray. Father, we, we believe your word, even the, even the hard and embarrassing part. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to put it into practice in our lives, in this church, in our marriages. And Lord, you ordered this sermon to be on Mother's Day, and it seems kind of crazy. But Lord, we trust your sovereignty and pray that perhaps this was for a purpose that only you know. And I pray that you would lead this church to follow after you. And Lord, I pray for that person that's in pain right now because of current sin or for past things that's happened, broken relationships, broken love. Lord, remind us that you will never stop loving us. Lord, you love us in such a way that you love us even enough to let us walk away, but at the same time promise that you will never walk away from us. So God, even through pain and tears, I pray that some, some whose hearts are breaking, are holding on to you and reaching out for you when they've reached out and been disappointed by others. Lord, that may they find that satisfaction in you and find it completely in you. And Lord, for those who are trying it at romance, but have never had a love relationship with the Creator, the one who is love. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the wisdom of not being foolish and thinking that we know how to love without you. Draw us to you. Draw our hearts to you. Show us what love is. Lead us away from what it isn't. Remind us that we can turn away from sin and be forgiven by you. But Lord, help us in our hearts right now to not put it off to later when we've had time to drift back into our comfort levels. We trust you to restore us, to forgive us, to save us, and to do so for your glory. And so Lord, as we sing, I pray that we contemplate the decisions that you are leading us to make and that we take those steps right now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we pray and we celebrate Mother's Day, I want to, to let you in on something that's coming next week. Next week, we have decided that we are going to have worship in the parking lot. We don't know exactly how all of that looks yet. The weather will we'll have a say certainly in that, but we want you to be here and in your cars, perhaps on your tailgate, practicing social distancing. Wear your mask, wear your gloves, wear scrubs if you want to. But we're going to come together and we're going to worship outside and we'll see what that looks like. We have, we've talked about how to do this in a, in a good way and a safe way and we're going to do that. So we have some speakers, some stuff that we're going to set up outside, and we're looking for.
forward to it. We're planning to have communion as well. And so be aware and tell everybody else. You know who is watching us right now. And I challenge you to tell everybody who is not so that everybody knows that everyone can be together next week and will be safe. And watch Facebook as we unfold some further details as we get closer to Sunday. And so we can communicate that. We can communicate the words to the songs and those type of things. But next week, we're getting together. And so pandemic is starting to be over. We realize that it's not gone and we're going to be wise. But next week, we're going to be together. So pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for creating us and putting us in the families and giving us mothers and fathers that you have ordained to lead us, to teach us. And Father, I pray that mothers feel this today. They feel the honor that they are due. Father, I pray for this church that you would help us as, as we follow after you. I pray for next week that it would be a special celebration, a great opportunity to reunite with our faith family. And Lord, we pray that that revival may break out in the parking lot simply because of your work and nothing that we do. God, we trust you in this and pray that you will continue to lead us and that you will get the glory from it. We thank you for this and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Happy Mother's Day.